0: Well, when we started this series a few weeks ago, one of the things that we said in week one was this, our whole purpose for this series is to provoke you to loving Jesus deeper right now, to cause you to understand more about what is to come for those of us who are who are followers of Jesus Christ. And, and you know, and and we want you to love Jesus more right now as we take a look towards the things to come. When you study last things and when you look at end times, what we quickly discover, especially in the book of Revelation and really in all of Scripture, is that the central figure that is brought up over and over again in this and what all of this revolves around is the person of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, everything revolves around Jesus, as you're going to see here again today, as we are ushered into the throne room of God. And whenever you study last things, when you look at end times or what's called eschatology, right? That just means the study of last things. When you study that, there's a key attitude that that is just, it's key for you as 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 to unlocking truths in your life. And here is that key. That key is this. It is an attitude of worship. When you enter into the study of last things, you come in with this humble attitude of worship as you begin to discover the sovereignty of God and you begin to look at the sovereignty of God. And I I asked a question a few moments ago, what are you struggling with right now? What is it that just, maybe it's just kind of messing you up. Maybe that's something that's going on in a relationship right now. Maybe it's something that's happening in your marriage or something in your family or something happening with one of your kids or, or maybe your job is, you know, is not everything that you hoped it would be and you're struggling there. Maybe you lost a job or maybe finances. I don't know, but I know that every person has a struggle. We all have something that we can very easily begin to get worried about. Some of us, we worry more than others, and sometimes our worry can consume us, right? And we begin to dwell upon these things that, that yes, they are real problems. We're not minimizing the fact that we have real problems in our lives, and, and here's what we can often do. Those things can very often consume every thought. And they take capture, you know, of our minds. And we, we oftentimes can be dominated, uh, you know, and our thoughts can be dominated by these problems. And, and whenever we're worried about things and whenever we're struggling with worry like that, that begins to affect us in a number of different wa- ways, right? It affects our actions, the way that we we act. And that's our demeanor and how we come across. And, you know, it can affect us Physically, it can affect us emotionally. When you're worried and consumed with whatever that struggle uh, may be, and it's just you know overwhelming you with worry, you know, and you begin to maybe it then begins to affect because you're affected. It begins to affect your relationships with others around you, and so there can be this kind of perpetual cycle that just feeds itself, and it's destructive in our life, and and we oftentimes can be overwhelmed by feeling that our life is out of control. And you can feel like when you look around at our world that the world is out of control, right? I mean, sometimes it looks that way. Sometimes it seems like evil is winning. Sometimes it feels like that in our lives. So so what needs to happen in our life as a believer? How How are we different than the rest of the world that looks and sees the brokenness in our world too? And there's a great sense of hopelessness with them how are we different? What, what, are, what is different in our life? Well, because God loves us, because Jesus loves us, he has chosen to reveal some things to us. Why has he chosen to reveal these things that we're talking about? He's chosen to reveal these things to us because what he wants us to experience is a whole new perspective on what it is that we see with our eyes. Because what we see with our eyes many times, it's discouraging, amen, right? It's discouraging when we look and we seem, it seems like the world is winning or it seems like darkness is prevailing. It seems like Satan is is winning. And well, God has given us this glimpse into what is to come to give us his perspective, to give us this idea of understanding the one about the one who is really in control, You may feel like things are out of control in your life. And let me just say that you and I, we are not in control. We may feel like they're out of control, but but here here is what God has done for us. He wants us not only to remember what he's done in our past as we did just a few moments ago, and it's not only just realizing that he is walking with us right now, which he does, and we stand in the power of Christ right now. That's wonderful. But what he has also done is he wants to remind us oftentimes where we get discouraged of the incredible plans that he has for us moving forward, the plans that he has out ahead for us. And what that in turn does, it gives us fresh perspective when you start understanding these things. Do you remember last week when we were talking about when Paul was talking to the church at Thessalonica and he started talking about the coming of the Lord and the rapture of the church and those things that we described last week? When we started looking at that, do you remember that Paul ended that passage by saying, uh, first he said, I don't want you to be uninformed about these things, because when you're uninformed, that causes panic, that causes worry, that causes distress. So he gives them the information to do what? And then he says at the end of that passage in chapter four, brothers, he said, encourage each other with these words. You see, this stuff we're studying has been given to us to encourage us. It's been given to, to give us a sense of hope because we look at right now and with our eyes, it doesn't seem like there's hope. But whenever you know that there's more ahead, it brings hope. So this is what you'll find in the book of Revelation when John writes this book, as, as we know this, that there is a sequence that he writes it in that is very purposeful. Okay, You find that before the book ever gets into God telling about some of the future things, those apocalyptic things, before it gets into the the details of the tribulation and the great tribulation, which we'll look a little bit more into in the coming weeks, before it gets into talking about the Antichrist or the seals being broken and what that means as the tribulation comes forth, or trumpets blaring, or judgment on the earth, or the horsemen of the apocalypse, before he ever gets into bowls being poured out and wrath being poured out and judgment on the earth, before God shows John any of these things. Now, by the way, that would be disturbing to see all of those things first, right? And to not know, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me as a, as a believer? That would have been disturbing. Before God ever shows John any of those things in the Revelation, what he does first is he takes him into the throne room. He takes him into the very throne room of God, into the very presence of the God of the universe. Why? It's to first be reminded as he sees all of these things that will seem like they are out of control. All of these things that will seem like All, you know, just all hell's breaking loose, so to speak, right? Whenever you see this, what he's doing is he's reminding John, and it's a reminder for us today, of the one who is ultimately in control and sovereign over all things that he's about to be shown, all right? Because these things are going to seem like they're out of control. Let me ask you a question. Does your world that you live in ever feel like it's spinning out of control? What would you say? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just overwhelming. Sometimes it just, you know, it's everything we can do just to keep a sense of hope. Do your worries, be honest about this, okay? Because if you're honest, you know that you felt this way at certain times. Maybe you're, you're strong right now, but there have been times where you've struggled like I have, where it can seem like the things that we're worried about feel bigger than, than we can handle. They feel bigger than our God can handle. Sometimes we feel that way, right? We can get overwhelmed by those things, which we might not openly want to admit that, right? We're in church. We don't want to say that. But our actions can certainly evidence that by the way that we live, by the way that we carry ourselves. We can, we can have this sense of our demeanor, you know, whenever it comes to our worries, where really we're, they're, they're, our peace is gone, our joy is gone. Those things are robbed from us, Right. Well, John, I want you to begin to think about the context of what he's writing here. John has witnessed, think about this with me, the brutal murders and martyrdom of so many of his good friends, his best friends. John himself has suffered enormously for Jesus Christ. And he is now in his 90s. He's an old man and he's in his 90s and he is suffering currently on a on a cold, damp rock called Patmos in the Mediterranean there. And it wasn't a tropical paradise by any means. It was a place for exiles. It was a place of punishment and banishment. Do you think John ever felt like things were out of control? Do you ever think John ever wondered, is this really worth it all. Do you ever think John ever got discouraged whenever he looked and he saw all the things that... Do you ever think John, uh, you know, because he was human, had a moment of thinking, you know, is Jesus really going to conquer all of this? Because in his world at that particular time, I think because he's human, he must have battled, I would have battled with getting discouraged looking around at what he saw with his eyes, right? And then what happens? Then God shows up. Jesus shows up in a big way. And that's what he does in the midst of our struggles. He shows up in a big way, right? And John's given a revelation of Jesus. He's taken now into this incredible, incredible worship experience, into the throne room of heaven, Okay. And and my words today, I'm not going to be able to adequately describe this for you. Um, I, I mean, it, it, I'm hoping that you will just catch a glimpse of this throne room experience that John has in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. I mean, what we're going to see in these chapters, it's almost like a movie trailer, okay? When you go to the movies and and you get a preview of what is to come, you know, you hear that guy's voice in a world where everything seems to be spinning out of control. All right, that's what it seems like. There is one who's still sovereign. That's what you're going to see, okay? John's taken into this most incredibly beautiful, overwhelming worship experience. And we read about it. And when we read about it, you know what I find is that my soul resonates with that. I feel like when I'm reading that, I feel like I'm at home. You know why you feel that way? Because we feel like we belong there. You know why? Because you do belong there. You belong there in the presence of God in that way. So in Revelation chapter 4, let me give you a quick synopsis. John is invited to come through this door, a door into heaven itself, and he's shown an image of the throne of God. And around that throne of God, where God is seated on that throne, and, and and the focus is not this piece of furniture, okay? You need to understand that John is doing the best he can to put it into words that we can understand. Understand, And as he's describing what he's being shown, there are there are 24 elders who are seated on 24 smaller thrones that are surrounding the Father. And now this 24, when this number 24 comes up, this is a number also of completion, okay? It's a number of completion. And there are a number of different thoughts and and, and many have differing opinions about who the 24 elders are. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. We don't know for sure, but there's speculation by some that that's a a, a representation of the 12 patriarchs of Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. We don't know, okay? Nowhere does it say that in the scripture that that's what it is. It's just just guys who are kind of taking a guess at that. But, But I tell you what many, think and I this is really more in the camp where I kind of uh, where I'm at is that many think that this 24 is a representation of the redeemed. It's a representation not of angels who have been redeemed because they have no need for redemption. It's a representation of us who have been redeemed because of Jesus Christ. Because it says that they were given crowns and that they take these crowns and they lay these crowns at the feet of Jesus. And so, and, and so what John also sees is not only these, these elders who are around the throne, who are in the proximity of God Himself, he sees these, these seraphim. They are called uh, seraphim, these angels that are flying that God created. And they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is. And who is still to come. This speaks of God's, you know, being outside of time. Outside of eternity. He's not subjected to our laws and to our time in any way. And they were created to worship Him. And since their inception, they've been crying out unto Him that He is holy. You saw in the Scripture as you read a few moments ago as you were preparing for communion. That it said in that chapter that the elders fall down before Him and in awe lay their crowns before Him, continuing in that worship. In this worship experience, lightning is flashing. Have you ever just seen lightning flash across the sky and it's just like, it's awe-inspiring, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine being in this worship experience? Thunder is peeling and rumbling in this place. By the way, when these angels are crying out, Holy, Holy Holy. Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 6, and he says that the door post shook at the voices of the angels. This isn't even God speaking. We're just talking about the, the sound, the awe inspiring sound. The sevenfold shining glory of the Spirit is there, and all of the hosts of heaven are worshiping God. There's this awesome, breathtaking activity. That is happening in front of John. I want you just to envision that. Think with me for a moment as all of this activity is going on. All of the lightning flashing, the rumbling, the voices of the angels. All who are down worshiping worshiping God the Father. And then God begins to stir. Almighty God stirs from his posture of patience that he has had with humankind and with the earth and he readies himself to set into motion that which is going to be described as the great tribulation as we'll see in chapters 6 through 19 we'll be looking some in that in the coming weeks i mean we would describe it maybe in our words today as all hell is about to break loose on the earth but i think a better way of saying it is all heaven is about to break loose All heaven is going to break loose and God is preparing to bring an end to Satan. He's preparing to bring an end to all of his works of evil, all sickness, all pain, all sorrow. God is about to unleash his wrath and his justice and the Lord will take back from the earth or take back the earth from Satan, the usurper, the one who has usurped the authority that was not rightfully his And after that tribulation period, that seven year period of tribulation, paradise will be regained and restored that was initially created, that you and I were created to experience. It's the moment that Romans 8 that Paul writes about. Do you realize this? And I know you know this, that all of creation is groaning for the return of Christ. Not just we as even humankind. All of creation, Paul writes about it. Look what he says. Let the first part of this verse speak to you. If you're struggling today, listen to this. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. Are you glad about that? What does that verse preach? It preaches hope. It's hope. Anytime we talk about the return of Christ, anytime we talk about future things, What is it? A story? It's a story of hope. It's the hope that you have. okay. and then he says, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day with eager hope when it will join God's children. Who's that? That's us in glorious freedom from death and decay. You see, the the, the earth is under a curse. We're not only under a curse because of sin, but so is all of the earth. And it's it's longing for that day of freedom as well. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Groaning for what? Groaning for redemption. Groaning for things to be made right. And so John is in the midst of this epic worship experience. I mean, it's unlike anything. You've been in some great ones, but it's unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life. And all of the focus is on God. It's not on any person who's up here. It's not on anybody playing instruments or anything like that. I mean, it's all on God. And we are all struck in his presence. Now, remember that there are no chapter breaks in the original manuscripts, and that's what happens all in chapter four. The elders are down before him. John is seeing all of this, witnessing all of this. The angels are flying and and, and they are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Now he moves into chapter five and what you're gonna see is God begins to move. I want you to see this. John sees it and he writes about it. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Who is that? That's God the Father. There was writing on the inside And the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel. He says, I saw a strong angel. We don't know who that angel is, but here's what we do know. Oftentimes when there's a proclamation, Gabriel would give a proclamation. Gabriel's name literally means strength of God. Okay, so maybe it's Gabriel, maybe it's an angel we don't know the name of, but he sees a strong angel and who shouted with a loud voice, and this voice must have just boomed and echoed through this whole place. Who is worthy to break the seals and this scroll and open it? Now, I want you to notice verse 3. But, what does it say next, church? No one. I want you to hang on to that. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then John says, then I began to weep bitterly because, read it with me out loud. What does it say? No one was found worthy to open the scroll and to read it. No one was found worthy, he says. First thing I want you to notice, I'm just going to give you just kind of a little bit of an outline of the chapter and you can take application points for yourself, but I want you to see this. What I noticed first is this seven sealed scroll. Okay? What I see is this seven sealed scroll. What John saw and what he was focused in on was this document that was in the hand of God. And it wasn't just in any hand, it was in his right hand. The right hand is a hand of authority. And this document, this seal, is in the hand of God. All right? Now, what is this scroll? I mean, when I read that, I'm like, okay, what is this? What does this mean? Well, in the ancient days, there weren't books like this, okay? There wasn't your iPad where you can, as some of you will use, or your phones today where you read digitally, and that's amazing, right, that we get to do that. There wasn't anything like that. In the ancient days, everything was written on scrolls, kind of like this, okay, that you see on the screen. And and so you see a, a scroll like this would be a parchment paper. It might be animal skin, and they would write on these kinds of scrolls. Of, of Scrolls and and uh, now what was unique and what what John pointed out about this scroll is that it was a seven-sealed scroll. Readers and listeners of that day would have automatically known what that was. We read that and we don't, we're like, okay, I don't understand seals. I don't know, you know, we're not used to seeing scrolls today. But they knew when they heard when he described this seven-sealed scroll, let me under, uh, explain it to you what this means. And, and now you may, they understood what it, what it meant. And we may be like, what does it mean? And here's maybe even a bigger question you have today. What in the world does a seven-sealed scroll have to do with me today? How is this even relevant, Bart? How is it relevant for me in my life today? And what I want you to know is I want you to see that it very much impacts your life. It impacts your life today, okay, because of the content of this scroll. In this culture, when something was sealed, it was an official and legal document. The seals indicated that it was not to be opened or tampered with by anyone who was not in proper authority or who was worthy to open that document. It had to be a certain person, okay? Longer documents had multiple seals. They would roll it up, seal it, take the wax, use the signet ring, roll it up, do it more, okay? And then they would break that seal. And there was there had to be witnesses to the opening and the unveiling of a scroll like this. The reader of this day, they understood that a seven-sealed document was a contract. It was a will and and testament. But it was even so much more than that. The Hebrew people, the Jews, understood this kind of document. And this is powerful. They understood it as a real estate title. They understood it as a deed to something that was valuable. So what is this deed? What is this valuable content here, okay? It would be like the deed to your home. Once you're done paying a mortgage, you hold the deed. We, uh, it would be like this piece of real estate that maybe you buy and there's a lien on it at some point until you pay it off completely, right? We know about this here at EVC because we, we know how expensive land is here at EVC. It took us a while to get it. And then we finally, with all of you pitching in, what happened? We paid that land off and now guess what? That land belongs to EVC, right? No bank owns the land. There's not someone else that owns that. That belongs to us. We hold the title. We hold the deed. Okay? So so what is this scroll that God is holding? This was understood by the readers of this day to be the title and deed to the earth. The title to the earth. Who owns the earth? Who rules the earth? And in this case, who can redeem the earth? Because there is an incredible mortgage to be paid. who can pay the mortgage? Who can... Who can redeem it? Who can pay the ransom? Who can take this back? Who is qualified to pay it in full? Who can redeem it and all of its inhabitants that are living in slavery to a curse that is upon this world that we live in that occurred at the fall of man? And this thought blows me away, okay? When the angel asked the question, who is worthy to take this scroll and open it? It's not only who's qualified, it's who's able. Who is able to do it? Who is able to defeat Satan and his dominion of evil? Who can, what he's asking is, who can reverse the curse? Who is capable of doing this? Who is capable of restoring all things? The question is a booming question. And it's just, again, it would just be a booming question just filling up this whole hall of heaven here, okay? And then what I notice when the question is asked, you've got all of this sound, you've got all of this worship, all of this praise, the angels that are crying out, all of this going on, the angels speaking, and then all of a sudden there is a question asked and there is a silence that is deafening. And that's what I just want you to just picture that. It just gets just incredibly quiet. There's a quietness kind of like right now. You can hear the proverbial pin drop, all of this noise and praise and activity and then dead silence, right? Think about this, all the heavy weights, of of the of the Bible from from times past, Abraham, they are there, Jacob, Moses, David, Daniel, all the prophets of God, not a one of them could say a word, and they are great men of God, right, all of the apostles were there. Not even the great Apostle Paul could speak and say anything. None of our loved ones who have gone ahead of us could say anything. Not any of the angels, not Michael, not Gabriel, not any of these archangels could say a word. No one was worthy. No one says a word. No one steps forward. There have been many who have been willing. There are many who have tried to take the title of the earth, right? Right? who have tried to dominate and who have tried world domination. They're starting with Satan himself, who God calls at this time the prince of this age, the God of this age. Satan is a usurper. At the fall of man, what happened was we forfeited our inheritance that God gave us. And as we forfeited our inheritance, Satan, the usurper, usurped the authority and he's called the Prince of this world, and when we look around at our world, we can see the repercussions of his rule. Right? We see that this rule is filled. This his rule is filled with evil, and it dominates the world that we see with our eyes today. We see it everywhere, and people are in bondage to sin and to evil, and to and they're slaves. He's a usurper. He's an interloper. He hijacked the world, and he hijacked the world and perverted everything within it. Now, something that's really interesting to me, and I want to point out to you too, is that even though Satan has called, is called the God of this world right now, little g-o-d, not God, but God himself even says, I want you to notice this because this is powerful. In whose hand is the scroll? It's in God's hand, right? What does that tell us, church? It tells us that God never lost control. It tells us that Satan has usurped authority and there is a huge mortgage to be paid for the earth and for our lives as we are inhabitants of this. When it comes to time to open the scroll, the question is asked, who is worthy to open it? Who is the rightful owner? Who can redeem it and take it back from Satan and bring it into its rightful restored place? There's a search for one who's worthy. They're asking the question. There's a search, and it's a a question that has to be answered. and, And it's a search that appears like sin and evil is prevailing. And in the silence that John witnesses, nobody's speaking up. And I want you to think of John at this point. This sadness overwhelms him. He begins to weep. And this weeping is not just a tear just rolling down his cheek. The, the word actually is an uncontrollable wailing. So in the silence, now you hear a sobbing. You hear this sobbing and this, this deep, guttural cry that's going on. It's, it's that same kind of pain and that same kind of feeling of loss whenever you've lost a loved one. And you've been at that funeral and, and you know, and you're, you're heartbroken and you're sad and you, you cry. And it's not just a single tear. It's a, it's a deep, guttural cry out to God. And in this moment where, uh, you know, maybe in that moment you feel lost, you feel pain, you feel, you feel maybe panic. What's next? What's going to happen? All seems lost and those tears just pour down his weather-beaten face. One of my heroes... Uh, of uh, as a pastor is it it was a man named Dr. W.A. Criswell. He pastored First Baptist Church of Dallas for over 50 years, over 50 years. Wow. Okay. And then he was a pastor emeritus after that and just continued to preach the gospel. I got to hear him preach when he was in his 90s he was still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I heard him preach, and he was one of the most eloquent spoken men I've ever heard. And I heard him preach, but one of the things that he wrote about those tears is this. Listen to this. He says this. I love what he says. These tears represent the tears of all of God's people through all of the centuries. Those are your tears. They're my tears. These tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over their first grave. Don't you know there must have been great sorrow whenever Abel was killed. As they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent still form of their son Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and the tears that have been wrung from the heart and the soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead as they stand beside their open graves, as the experience and the trials and the sufferings of life, the heartaches and the disappointments indescribable. He's talking about us, our tears. Such is the curse that sin has laid on God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it. That usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And John wept Audibly for the failure to find a redeemer because it meant that this earth and its curse is consigned forever to death. In other words, he's saying, without a redeemer, there is no hope. None. It meant that death and sin and damnation and hell should reign forever and ever, and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. So John wept, and he wept uncontrollably. And we weep still today when we look around with our eyes and we look at the world. Why? Because when you look at the world, it's not right today, is it? When you look at it, you see the brokenness and we're like, man, this world is so messed up and who can fix it? Who can redeem it? That question is asked and no one steps forward. But look, one of the 24 elders said to me, he says as John is crying, stop Weeping, and then he says, Look, look over here, John. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the what, church? The victory. He's won. Notice it's notice the tense, it's not he's going to win, it's already happened. He has won the victory. That's the the Greek word, nikeo. That word victory, it's conqueror. It's where we get our Nike. Jesus just did it, okay? That's what it means, all right? And then look at what it says. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John expects to see this line step forward, but instead, what does he see, church? What does he see? He sees a lamb. The most contrasting thing you could see, right? Jesus is called the Lamb of God over and over again. the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He looks and he sees a standing slaughtered lamb. Now, a key word in this is standing yes he 's been slaughtered, but he 's standing. He says, then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. Who do you think that is that 's Jesus, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders, he's the central figure, right? He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. I know when we hear numbers, when we hear horns, when we hear eyes, when we read the book of Revelation, many of us, we check out, right? let me just tell you what that is very, very quickly. Okay. All that is that number seven is a number of completion. It's a number of of perfection. When you read the word horns and that's described, that is a sign and a symbol of authority and power. So it's complete power, complete omnipotence is what it means describing Jesus. When you see eyes and it talks about the eyes, that's all perceiving. All right. Seven eyes would be all perceiving. It's talking about Jesus being all powerful as well as omniscient. He's being described as God is what's happening. Okay. That he's God and he's the lamb of God. John doesn't just see a lion. He sees a lamb, a little, and this, this word for lamb, it's not even an adult lamb. It's this little pet lamb. It's this little lamb and he's butchered and he's bloodied. And it's been said that the only man-made things in heaven we'll see are the wounds of our Lord Jesus. That will be a forever reminder to us of his love and the ransom that he paid for us. And this lamb that has been butchered, what is he doing? What is his posture? He's standing. What does that mean? That means this, is that even though he was murdered and he allowed himself to be, he has been raised from the dead and is victorious over sin and death. Amen, church? Amen. And there is hope. There is hope. And now I want you to see the response. And this is our response. There's a song of the saved multitude. And I want to read it just very quickly and we'll pray. And when he took the scroll, that's the lamb, took the scroll, the four living beings, those are the angels, right? And the 24 elders, that's a representation of of redeemed humanity, fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense Now, I want you to see this, which are the prayers of God's people. Have you ever felt like your prayers weren't making a difference? You ever feel like maybe sometimes God's not hearing your prayers? I want you to know this, that the scripture says God captures every tear and keeps it in a bottle. He says that in the book of Psalms and he captures all of our prayers and he keeps them as treasures in these bowls. He hears every prayer, okay? And there's coming a time where he's going to set everything right in His perfect sovereign time. He keeps them all in these, in these bowls and these treasures. And you're going to see that when you get to heaven one day. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered. And your blood that we celebrated earlier today, right, has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And I just want to ask, are you going to be there? He wants you there. Are you going to be there on that day? Every people group, there'll be a representation of every people group. And he says this, and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. That's us, right? Right. We, this is the priesthood of every believer that he's talking about. And then I looked again and they and they will reign on the earth. This is speaking of that millennial kingdom where God sets everything back to the way that it's supposed to be, that thousand year reign. And then I looked again and I heard the voices of how I want you just to think about this. I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings. And the elders, it's going to be loud in heaven, right? Okay? But the sound is going to be perfect. Isn't that fantastic, right? And they, what did they do? And and, and I heard this, and they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, what did they say? Amen. They said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down. And what did they do? They worshiped the Lord. Can I just say something to us in closing? Do you know this? We are made for worship. We're all going to worship something, right? Sometimes we worship our worries. Sometimes we worship money. Sometimes we worship our jobs. You're made for worship. And we were made and created to worship Jesus Christ for all eternity. So, so what is this all about? What this is about is he is giving us new perspective. He wants you to know in the midst of your struggle that you're having right now, that this is not the end of the story for you. He wants you to understand that you have a future, that your life is in his hands right now and your future life is in his hands. And if he can handle all of that that we just read about, he can handle us, amen? He can handle what's going on in our lives and there's no greater act of worship I believe that whenever you're struggling, that whenever you go ahead and you choose to say, Lord, I'm struggling right now, but I'm going to choose to worship you and trust you. Today, let's just, let's just reflect upon that as we close right now in prayer. These passages were given as an encouragement not to scare us. They were given as an encouragement to remind us of what is to come. To remind us of our future, to remind us of our hope in the one who is worthy and the one who is able, the one who redeemed us with His blood, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of, of God, the lion of Judah. I want to just encourage you right now just to worship Him today. You're made to worship. Choose to worship Him today. Choose to leave this place and worship in the awe of who He is. When your world seems like it's spinning out of control, when it seems like everything's falling apart, remember in whose hand the scroll belongs. The sovereign God. The worthy one. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, He came for you. He died for you. And He loves you. And He wants you to be there with Him on that day. You can place your faith in Jesus right now say, Jesus, would you be my savior? You are the worthy lamb. See, he already paid for our sins. We have to choose in faith to believe that he is who he says he is. Father, what a thrilling word you show us in a glimpse into the throne room. I know that our words are inadequate. We're still overwhelmed by your power, by your love. All of the years of tears and death and sorrow and sickness and weeping and crying in pain, all creation groaning and waiting for the moment of redemption, knowing that you are the worthy one who makes it possible for us to be with you forever. Father, would you fill us with your hope today as we look forward to the coming of Jesus one day, be it in our lifetime or not, we do not know, but Lord, may we live every day with a longing for your appearing as if today were the day you were coming back. Prepared. Filled with joy, filled with hope, and ready. And it's in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said.